I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Wow. <laughs> um, when I was 19, I, I was at my first real church job, the snot-nosed brat of 19 as a youth and music minister. And I remember uh, right before the offering, a deacon came up to pray uh, before the offering. But one thing he said that really stuck with me 23 years almost has said, uh, Lord, thank you that you've given Larry to us so that he might serve this church. But listen, so also we might serve him and give him opportunities to grow. I was 19, and I was choked up by that. Like, this is really beautiful. Well, you might not know this, but we have a resident program. These are basically internships uh, for Denver Seminary students. We've had as many as five at once. And uh, we have three right now, one in young adults, one in uh, students, one in children's. And they're studying in seminary to learn how to become pastors. And that's a lot of work. And um, it, it, they serve in various departments, like I said, and, and they get an opportunity in real world to practice being a pastor. And one of the things that we've done historically is to try to give them an opportunity to do something that's really, really scary. Can you guess what that is? Get up in front of you. They can see you. Like, we, we have an opportunity to do that. So you've heard in the past from several of our ministry residents, we try to do this at least once before they uh, graduate from seminary. And today, uh, we have a real amazing opportunity to hear from one of our ministry residents. Uh, Amelia Schmidt has been serving with us for three and a half years uh, in student ministry, both teaching uh, and leading worship. She's a very, very gifted uh, communicator. But listen, uh, this is not just a chance for us to give her some real-world practice up in front of a large group. Uh, little note, this is the largest group she's ever preached to. But you guys are an amazing congregation, aren't you? And a great audience. So it's going to be like butter. It's going to be easy. It's going to be great. But it's not only an opportunity for us to make an investment into her. I want you to look at me. Everybody look at me for just a moment. This is an opportunity for us to receive the good words that she's sharing. She's going to take us through one of the hardest psalms as we, was as we were working on this series, uh, she was slated to do Psalm 2. And so I opened to Psalm 2 and I started reading it. As I started reading, I started laughing. So I was like, I'm so glad it's not my week to have to do <laughs> this text. But I've already heard it twice and she, she, God is using her and will use her to speak to your hearts this morning. So I'm gonna ask you to sit up straight. I'm gonna ask you to pull out your sermon notes. I want you to tune your hearts to receive his grace uh, through his messenger, Amelia. Would you give a warm South Fellowship welcome to Amelia? Thanks, Larry. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about myself before I get started. So I grew up in a tiny town of South, in South Dakota, a little southeastern South Dakota. And after that, I went on to college in Minnesota and went to a small private school there called Crown College and got my degrees in music and worship arts and Christian studies. After that, I decided to go on to more school because I just apparently didn't have enough. And I moved out here to Colorado to attend Denver Seminary to pursue my Master's of Divinity. And in just under a month, I will finally graduate, and I'm so excited. <laughs> and a few other important things about me is I love pizza. It's my all-time favorite food. I love ultimate Frisbee, my favorite thing to do, and I love hanging out with friends. 
And another thing that actually not a ton of people know about me is I'm kind of a nerd. And growing up, my family watched a lot of sci-fi shows and movies, and one of my favorites was Star Wars. Yes, any Star Wars fans out there? Okay. And in this epic series, we see this famous rebellion. The Rebel Alliance stood bravely against the evil galactic empire, despite the overwhelming odds stacked against them. And throughout decades of secretly working, they finally overthrew the emperor and restored democracy to the galaxy once again. Good one, yeah, so exciting. And we love stories like this, right? I mean, good, beating evil. They make us, make us feel good because that's, that's right. But what if it was the opposite? What if it was evil rebelling against good? I mean, it, that doesn't make us feel very good. It doesn't feel quite right. I mean, if you went to a new movie that came out and it was just a bunch of bad guys beating up on some really nice, sweet guys, you, you might not like that very much. I mean, we want the good guys to win. And as much as this doesn't make sense, I realize that it happens every single day. I mean, kids rebel against their parents who deeply love them and care for them. We break rules that are meant to protect us and keep us safe. And each and every one of us rebel against a God who deeply loves us. We sin. As much as we don't want to do it, we still do it. We want to control our lives. We want to be our own boss, and we forget who God is. And it, we aren't the first ones to do this either. I mean, ever since basically the beginning of humanity, this has been an issue. And in Psalm 2, we see a story of a rebellion, a rebellion against God, a rebellion against good. So if you have your Bibles, would you please open them up to Psalm 2? It will also be on the screen for you. I got to turn this on. There we go. <laughs> Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, Psalm 2 begins by setting the scene with this rebellion. I mean, we see nations rising up, peoples plotting, kings banding together. It seems as though everyone is in on this rebellion. Let's go. But then we see who it's against. It's against the Lord and his anointed. 
which is the king, the king of Israel. In verse 3, we hear the, the battle cry of these rebels. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And this is a metaphor of stubborn cattle or oxen that want to break free of their restraints, those things that are keeping them to, holding them to the plow. They didn't view God's kingship here as a good thing. They viewed God as oppressive. They thought they were enslaved. They wanted to break free of this. And the goal of rebellion was lordship. Now, throughout scripture, this theme of rebellion comes up again and again and again. And things aren't much different today. I mean, in a post-Christian culture, we live in a world that has become normal to live in rebellion to God. But how do we actually do this? I mean, it might not be outright sinning, super obvious that everyone can tell. I mean, it might just be wanting to control our lives trying to control our finances and our family and our job and our schedule and everything instead of leaving it up to God to control. Or maybe it's just avoiding spending time with him in general, letting busyness, fear, life get in the way. I know I struggle with that. I'm a very busy person and it's hard. One night in youth group about a month ago, I was in a small groups, and I asked my students, how do you enjoy God? And they were giving out different answers. Some were saying by playing sports or being out in nature or listening to music. And then I turned to one student, and I asked her, how do you enjoy God? And she looked at me and said, I've never thought about it. For most of my life, I was afraid of God. So the idea of enjoying him is just so foreign to me. And I don't think she's alone in that. I think there is this widespread view of God that he is this big, scary God sitting up in heaven, watching us, just waiting for us to mess up so that he can squash us. And if you have that view of God, no wonder why it's crazy to think about enjoying him. But if you have that view of God... I want to encourage you to, to pay attention this morning and be open to the idea that maybe you have an incomplete view of who God is. Because the one true God is all-powerful, yes, but he is also full of love and grace and mercy and compassion. These rebels in Psalm 2 wanted nothing to do with God. They thought he was oppressive. They did not enjoy him. They thought that they could get out from under his control by rebelling, but they would soon find out that this wouldn't work very well. And in verses four through six, we see God's response to these rebels. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And the psalmist is showing here that God has the full range of emotions from laughter to anger, scoffing to wrath. I mean, he's laughing at this idea that people think that they could actually defeat him, God, the very one who gave them life. Wrath. 
What do you guys think of when you hear this word? How does it make you feel? What? Ruled? Yeah? Probably makes you feel a little anxious, fearful, just uncomfortable. I mean, I don't like talking about God's wrath at all. When I hear this, I just want to avoid it. Because wrath is not something we often talk about in churches or just in general. Especially in our Christian culture, there's become this stigma around anger and wrath. And so I would have much rather preferred to talk about God's love this morning. I mean, love, now love I could talk about. I love love, and I love loving people, and I love helping them and encouraging them. I would have preferred to just talk about that and skip his wrath. But today, I'm going to go there. And so I want us to take a step back and look at what God's wrath really means. Because a lot of you probably have that view of God that he is this big, scary God, one like my student had. But I think that God's wrath is his response when things go against his design, his good plan. It's his natural reaction to, uh, to sin and evil in the world. Now, I think that that what I'm going to say next is probably one of the most important things that you can hear this morning, okay? So listen up. Yeah. The object of God's wrath is sin and evil. The object of God's wrath is not you. It's not me. It's not us. The object of God's wrath is sin and evil and death and what it does to humanity, his children that he deeply loves, He doesn't want those things to have a hold on our lives, and he isn't going to just sit back and let us experience those things and not do anything about it. Now, God hates it when when people go against his love, and that's because he has a good plan for them. But sometimes when people reject his love, they experience his love as pain. They experience his love as wrath because, think for example, a piece of wood. If you run your hand along it one way, it feels pretty smooth. But if you go back the other way, against the grain, it's rough and you might get a splinter. I mean, going against the grain of God's love can be painful. And that's not what he intended because he is a God of love. Now, I believe that one of the reasons we don't like to talk about God's love, like I said earlier, is because there's a stigma around anger in general. Growing up, I used to think that fear, sadness, anxiety, anger, any of these negative emotions were bad and things to avoid at all costs. I thought that a good Christian girl didn't feel those things. And it wasn't until actually this year that I started to learn more about emotions. And in a leadership class I took at the seminary, we read this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this is probably one of the best books I think I've ever read. So if you haven't read it, please go buy it on Amazon or wherever and go read it because you won't regret it. But in this book, Peter Scazzaro talks about how emotions are not bad. 
There are bad or unhealthy ways to deal with our emotions, but emotions in and of themselves are not bad, nor are they good. They are just a part of being human, a part of being made in the image of God. And in his book, he says, to feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of our personal God. To cut them out of our spirituality is to slice off a part of our humanity. And if emotions are a part of being made in the image of God, that means that emotions are a part of God too. And we cannot minimize God's wrath and anger and other bad emotions and just expect him to to show his love and his grace and all the other good things that we like to talk about. Because that would be like telling a person, you can't be angry, you can only be happy all the time. And I told that to myself for most of my life, and let me tell you, it isn't healthy. God experiences the full range of human emotions, and we should expect nothing less from him. God's anger and wrath here are a result of people going against his design, his good plan. They wanted to to rebel and go against the grain of his love. And God's response in verses 4 through 6 is is showing the ignorance of the nations, these earthly leaders, as well as showing his sovereignty. We see that God is the sovereign king. God is the sovereign king. He is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. Now, one of my dad's favorite TV shows is Star Trek. And since I grew up watching a lot of these shows, I remember in it there was this alien race called the Borg. And it, this, this alien race, whenever they encountered another alien race they, that they intended to assimilate into their Borg collective, they would have this message that they recited together. And part of that message was, resistance is futile. And I think that God's response to these rebels here is an emphatic and resounding resistance is futile. Now, we see that God installs his king on Zion, and he gives a decree, and starting in verse 9, he says, you are my son, today I have become your father. At the heart of this decree is this idea of adoption, of sonship. We see that God is the sovereign king, but his earthly representative was this Davidic king, was this this king of Israel. Verse 9 says, you will break them with a rod of iron. Now, the, the word for break can also be translated as rule. And a rod of iron... I think this is iron. I don't know. Um, I found it. It seemed like a good prop. Um, But a rod of iron is a symbol of of rule and authority. And this iron scepter that a king usually has is just a use of how they uh, discipline and show judgment. And another use of this verb is in shepherding. A shepherd will use his staff to, to protect his sheep, 
to fight off intruders of his flock to keep them safe. And so this rod of iron is, is the, what the king will use to rule over the nations, expressing his God-given authority to enforce, discipline, as well as protect and guide. Now, the next phrase you see is, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, I thought about taking this clay pot and just throwing it on the ground and seeing if it will break, which it probably will, but I don't think Darwin will be very happy with me. So... <laughs> You can just imagine that. But a clay pot is very fragile. And in the ancient Near East, this practice of destroying pottery was a symbol of them destroying their enemies. Because they would even take the names of their enemies and write them on the pottery before they shatter it, just to emphasize their destruction. Now, an iron rod is very strong. It could probably easily break this fragile piece of pottery. And these metaphors are just showing how different God's rule is and the fragility of these earthly leaders. For Davidic kings, their power came from God and was exercised under God. But these earthly leaders, they tried to rule out of their own power. You may have heard in the past month that a famous music artist, Kanye West, has recently become a Christian. And he even released a new album called Jesus is King. I mean, he recognized this truth, that God is the sovereign king. And up until recently, he had been doing his own thing, and it seemed like he had it all. I mean, he had money, power, fame, fans, like an incredible, beautiful wife. But that wasn't enough for him. And since becoming a Christian, he has drastically changed his life around. Since recognizing this truth that God is the sovereign king, he now lives under God's authority and is is living and out of his power instead of his own. Now, Psalm 2 is one of the psalms most frequently quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. And that's because in the eyes of early Christians, this was a messianic psalm. So it was a, it was a prophecy about a king that they were waiting for, their Messiah, their Savior. Because without a king, the Israelites were left hoping and waiting for someone to come in and set them free and rule over them once again. And that king was Jesus. Although he didn't come how they expected him to. I mean, he was born as a, a little tiny baby in a tiny town of Bethlehem. And then years later, after he had been teaching and performing miracles and doing all these incredible things, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Not, not a big horse like a king might normally do. And then a week later, he was finally crowned. But he wasn't crowned with a crown of jewels. He was crowned with thorns. And exalted, not on a throne, no, he was crucified on a cross. This so-called Messiah had just died. And there the Jews were, were left waiting again for their Messiah to come. 
put to death. Jesus declared that resistance is futile. And three days later, he raised from the dead, declaring that he not only has power over life, but he has power over death as well. This new kingdom that Jesus ushered in was established in his death and resurrection. And he is the king of this kingdom. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. The son of God. The one that he is installing on Zion. And unlike the earthly kings, the kingdoms that were established in destruction and destroying other people in order to grow, the kingdom of God is established in love, in humility, in forgiveness and radical self-sacrifice. Now in Psalm 2, these earthly leaders were trying to, to rule out of their own power destroy other nations, rebel against God. And God responded to this by announcing the installment of his king. And also by showing that he is sovereign. But how are these earthly leaders to respond to this? How are we supposed to respond to this? Well, following the decree, we hear a warning to these rulers of the earth. And starting in verse 10, it says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Leaders are called to serve God. But this service is not slavery. No. There is freedom in serving God. However, serving doesn't come naturally to most leaders. I mean, it's a common thing to talk about in churches, servant leadership. But it almost seems like a contradiction. However, I would argue that the best leaders are those who serve the people that they lead. And I was trying to think of really good examples of this, and I couldn't think of any better than the world's best boss, <laughs> Michael Scott. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, the perfect example of this is actually Jesus. And it, my favorite example of his servant leadership is in, in John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And uh, washing feet is no normally a job done by servants. Because if you think about it, feet are pretty disgusting at times, especially if you're walking around the desert with sandals on. I mean, I went to Israel last year, and I wore my chacos basically every day. And let me tell you, my feet got pretty nasty. But this time, there was no servant there to wash their feet. And so during the meal, Jesus got up and washed each and every one of his disciples' feet. Even Judas's, who he knew in a matter of hours was about to betray him. Jesus, the true world's best boss, was it showing how leaders are called to serve. And we are not called not only to serve God because he is sovereign king, or sorry, because God is the sovereign king, we are called to serve him. And verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear. Now fear like wrath is another thing we don't often like to talk about, but all throughout scripture, we are called to fear God. 
So what, what does this mean? I mean, we are to, to recognize God's authority, that he is in control, that he is the supreme ruler. And we are to respond to that with this combination of fear and awe and reverence and deep respect. Because God is not an evil dictator or tyrant that we are to be afraid of even being in the presence of. God is a good king. He is loving, holy, all-powerful. And we are to fear God because of who he is. Stand in awe of him. Respond to him with, with reverence and respect. Along with serving the Lord with fear, we are called to, to celebrate his rule with trembling. And these parallel statements just reinforce how these earthly leaders are called to re respond to God's rule. Because fear and awe is, is combined with celebration and joy. Worship of God is characterized by both awe and fear, joy and celebration. All of these things, they aren't exclusive, they are complementary. And if you truly understand how good God is, your natural response would be worship. We are not only called to serve God because he is the sovereign king, but because God is the sovereign king, we are to fear him. Because God is the sovereign king, we should fear him. The psalmist here is telling these earthly leaders that they are to recognize that God is king and to live and lead out of that reality. And even though we aren't all kings and queens or presidents or governors, we are all leaders. We're leaders in our homes, in our churches, in our friend groups, and at work, and wherever else we find ourselves. And this psalm should serve as a warning to us, too. But warnings aren't necessarily bad. They can be very good things. We are not the boss. We report to a king who is much greater than us. And we should find freedom in that, knowing that God is the ruler of all things, that God has it under control, and, it's, and it, we aren't in charge. I mean, if we were in charge, this world would be a much worse place. <laughs> And it, I just wonder what it would mean for us if we were to take this seriously. How would that change the way we live and lead? Maybe it would look like just offering to God your hopes and your plans and your dreams instead of trying to control them and make them happen on your own. Or maybe it would be just realizing that Everything is not dependent on you. Everything is not dependent on what you do or don't do, say or don't say. I mean, how freeing is that? I had to tell myself that this morning. <laughs> we, we can have freedom knowing that God is sovereign, that he is in control. Because we can surrender these areas that cause us fear and anxiety and pain. 
wondering if you'll make your next rent payment or worrying about the choices that your son or daughter are making or or maybe your desire for marriage or for a child or hoping that you'll get that promotion at work or make it onto the team at school or get a part in the play. Part of it, Part of this responding to God with, with fear is conceding the need to control our lives. Because there is freedom in, in knowing that God is good and God is sovereign. How would that change the way that we live and lead? We are also told in verse 12 to kiss his son which is a, kind of a weird statement, but back then kissing was a sign of honor and submission. So with this call to submission, the psalmist gives a warning of what will happen if they don't. It says, kiss his son or, you will, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now this wording is important here. It says your way will lead to your destruction. It doesn't say kiss his son or he'll be angry and he'll lead to your destruction. No. God knows what's best for us. And if we go against that, it's going to end in destruction. God loves us and cares for us and wants what's best for us. And here he's, he's talking to leaders, those who have authority over other people. So often we hear stories of people in authority abusing their power. I mean, just look at the Me Too movement from the last couple of years. God is addressing these earthly leaders and telling them to, to serve him and submit to him because he, he wants what's best for them as well as the people that they are leading. Now, a few weeks ago, we took a group of 40-some students up to the mountains for our fall retreat, and it was such an incredible weekend. And it, while we were there, we went through different passages in 1 Corinthians. And it, Josh, the first night, went through 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And he said, Maybe love is not letting everyone do whatever they want. And I was thinking about this later, and I realized this is, this is tough love. It's the kind of love that is, can be painful. It might not be what a person wants in the moment, but what's done is done out of love and knowing what's best for them in the end. And I think that, that God's response here to these leaders, this warning was a form of tough love. Because God knows what's best for them and he knows that their way is not as good as his way. And he hopes that, that they would serve him and submit to him and have life instead of death and destruction. Now, you may have noticed that there's one more sentence in Psalm 2. Verse 12 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is a beautiful statement. 
but where in the world did it come from? I mean, I feel like I get whiplash every time I read this psalm. We just get a bunch of rebellion and and wrath and anger and destruction and warnings and more wrath and more anger and blessed are all who take refuge in him. What? I mean, I thought about skipping this whole psalm and just preaching on the last sentence. It would have been more fun for me and probably more enjoyable for you as well. But this sentence is so important. I mean, it says, blessed are all, all who take refuge in him. This directly contrasts these earthly leaders who were living in rebellion to God, who wanted to do their own thing. Because those people will have to, to face God's wrath and, and destruction. But all who serve God and submit to him will find refuge in God. They'll find safety, protection, and provision in him. Because God is the sovereign king, we should find refuge in him. Now, in preparing for this sermon, I spent some time looking at adorable pictures of mama birds taking care of their baby birds. Feel free to Google it sometimes when you're having a bad day. But uh, there were so many pictures of these baby birds just just resting under their mother's wings. And under those wings, they found protection, provision, warmth, love, peace. These baby birds trusted their mothers to take care of them, and they didn't have to do anything. They just sat there and rested in their mother's presence. And just like a baby bird, we are to take refuge under God's wings. We are to rest in his presence. What would that look like for us? Maybe it would just be spending some time just sitting with him. Just sitting in his presence and not doing anything. Or reading and meditating on scripture. Or worshiping God through music going on a walk and enjoying his beautiful creation, or just telling him how you're feeling. As we take refuge in God, we get to enjoy his presence. And the more we sit with him, the more we spend time in his presence, the more we learn from him and are shaped by him. And so whether it's a a few minutes a day, or a few hours a day if you have that kind of time, or just once a week or once a month, God wants whatever he can get from you because he loves us and he desires to spend time with us. If we took this seriously, imagine what this would look like. If we were a church who took this seriously and just pursued God's presence, what if people could tell that we've, been with him, by the way that we lived, the things that that we did, the words that we say, by the way that we love, living in the heart of Jesus, living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. We are to find our refuge in God, and we can do this because he is the sovereign king. 
We are to fearfully serve the Lord as king and take refuge under his wings. Fearfully serve the Lord as king and take refuge under his wings. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about Psalm 1. And in this, we see what it looks like to, for someone to delight in the Lord, in his law or his word. It says that they will be like trees planted by streams of water. And then today, we looked at Psalm 2 and the results of someone going against God's love. And the results are, are death and destruction. Which one is a picture of where you are today? Are you delighting in the Lord? Taking refuge in him? Or are you trying to be your own boss? To control your life, do your own thing, and not serving and submitting to God? Where are you now? Where do you want to be? It's your choice. At the beginning of this year, I came out of a pretty rough season in my life. And I was in a counseling session. I was talking to my counselor about how I felt like I needed to be perfect all the time. Perfect in, in work and life and friendships. I mean, friendships was a big one for me. I felt like in order to be the perfect friend, I needed to be available at all times in case anyone needs me. I always had my phone on at night just in case someone needed something. I would love others the best that I possibly could, even at the expense of myself and my own needs. And after hearing all this, my counselor turned to me and she said, Amelia, do you think that someone would love you if you didn't do something for them? And I, I just said, no. I don't know why anyone would love me if I didn't do anything for them. And I was shocked when those words came out of my mouth. And I realized that this was not only a problem in my friendships, but in my relationship with God as well. Growing up as a pastor's kid, I felt like I always needed to be perfect. There were so many eyes on me all the time, especially in a small town. And it, I learned that I needed to do things, and I needed to do them well. And I started to view God as king, and I was his servant. Now you're probably thinking, well, yeah, that's what you just talked about all morning. And it's true, but I didn't view God's kingship as a good thing. I didn't view it as loving lordship. Now, I loved God, and I knew in my head that he loved me, but deep down, I was trying to do things for God in order to earn his love. And I thought that the more I did things, the more he would love me. But let me tell you, that's not how his love works. We cannot do anything to earn God's love. And even though I knew that God was good and loving, I wasn't fully living out of that reality. I didn't know how to sit in God's presence and not do anything. Because I thought that I needed to do things for him, so if I'm just sitting there, obviously I'm not doing anything, so why would he love me? 
But thankfully, this year, God has been reminding me again and again and again of this truth. That God loves me for who I am and not for what I do. And God loves you for who you are and not what you do. And we can rest in his presence and take refuge in him simply because he loves us. Because we are his children. Now God is the sovereign king. And we are able to to trust him with our lives and rest knowing that he has it all under control. We need to Remember to both fearfully serve the Lord as king and take refuge under his wings. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you this morning for who you are. God, we thank you that you are in control and that we get to serve a good, loving king. God, I, help, I pray that you would help us this morning to, to take these truths and not only get them in our head, but God, I pray that you would move them to our hearts, that we would realize that, that you love us for who we are and not for what we do. God, I pray that, that you would just help us to, to rest in your presence this week. God, help us to to just pursue you. God, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.